Welcome to this week's Into the Wilderness podcast. Now, I know we said we'd try and squeeze a show out between uh, the last one and today, but it's uh, not been that possible because uh, everyone has been very busy, and I know you've been extraordinarily busy in the last um, few days, and in fact, the last few hours. So, I mean, I think you need to tell people what you've been up to, Aaron. <laughs> uh, yeah, so um, last three hours I've been catching a hippo. Uh, which is not, uh, I don't even know what day of the week it is today, um, but it's not it what you do on fact, a normal mon- oh, it's it's Monday. It's a Tuesday. Uh, it's a Tuesday today. Is it a Tuesday? It shows you, I don't yeah, know. You're on, what, you're on Tuesday week this week. Yeah. <laughs> um, so it's, it's not my normal Tuesday night, I have to say, catching a hippo, uh, but that's what we were doing. Uh, we, for our regular listeners, will probably have heard me talking about this uh, film project um, following elephants from Namibia, where they've got a, or had, uh, they're got an ongoing drought for the last sort of seven, eight years, um, and they're relocating these elephants up to the DRC, the new national park up there. But along with the elephants, there's actually 50 zebra going on this trip as well. Um, and now a hippo, um, because the, apparently they had an orphaned hippo up there, uh, and it needs a friend. So I was just going to ask, I, caught a bull I, I hope it had a friend. <laughs> yeah. So there's uh it was a tiny I saw a video of it the other day it was just a tiny little baby hippo that had been orphaned its mother had been killed uh which they raised and it's in this park but there's no other hippo there so we we've cordoned off this um young bull that has been selected to be taken up and that's what we were doing this evening and we set this trap for him like 2 days ago and every night we've been going to see if he's in there and finally he's he was eating some of the lucerne that we left for him so we dropped the gates and sort of made so sure that he is secure. And for the last two days, we've been <coughs> building um, the boma, uh, which is the this area that um, in the bush with big sort of netting sheets that get pulled on cables in a sort of funnel, uh, so that we can catch zebra tomorrow with a the helicopter. There, there you have it. It's so, not your average uh, average week. No, it's been. Uh, Pretty non-stop before before light and getting back many many hours after dark the last couple of days. But I'm not complaining. It's been good. Just trying to fit in the last little bits that I got to do, like the intro to this podcast, uh, before I get on a, a boat up to the DRC. Well, uh, apologies to listeners if you hear any random, maybe a, a train in the distance or maybe a car going past in the distance, but I'm recording this outside um, at my house, which I don't normally do, but uh, it's, a, it's a bit like Africa in the rural uh, rural Scotland, uh, well, Byron's just had a power cut there uh, where my internet's not working, <laughs> well, so did, I'm, yeah. having to use, I'm having to use the 4G on my phone to make this connection, so I have to be outside because I live in an old house and... The signal doesn't go inside properly, so uh, rural issues, eh? It's very, very possible that you'll hear Alex's dogs going nuts in a second, because at least once or twice a night they have a howling fit. Um, yesterday, well, this morning it was at 4 a.m., which was one hour before I actually needed to wake up. So oh, I didn't lovely. appreciate that very much, and uh, it was about 30 minutes before I started recording this intro, so I'm not sure if you'll hear them as well. 
Um, well, I. What were you going to say? Oh no no no! It was uh, it was it was a thought, but it, it disappeared. Were you going to ask me what kind of dogs they were? Uh, no, I I wasn't. But I mean, you can tell me what kind of dogs they are. <laughs> uh, it's four greyhounds, actually. Really? Okay, that that was actually not what I was expecting you to say. Yeah, there's a lot of greyhounds here, um, and Alex has four at his house. So they uh, they're all three of them are quite young, so they're quite boisterous, and yeah, they. I don't know, they just go play and run around in the yard and howl in the middle of the night. <laughs> I bet you they're quite fast as well. Yeah, well, yeah, they are fast. I haven't seen them actually like running out in the felt, but um, I'm told they are very fast. Oh, very nice. And you've been up in Sky, haven't you? Uh, yes, I was up in Sky for three days last week, um, a day and a half of which was probably some of the most glorious weather Sky has ever seen. Uh, it was 26 degrees, 27 degrees, and yeah, it was it was awesome. Uh, I mean, I would not advise anyone to go to Sky at that time of year because you'll be fighting the um, half a million other tourists that are there, uh, it, like blocking your view to go and see everything. So yeah, I would definitely pick a different time of year to go if you were planning on ever going, but it is definitely a place to go and visit or the west coast of Scotland is a place to go and visit. It, every time I go, I'm like, wow, this place is amazing. But very, 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 very busy time of year. Uh, and people can't drive properly. They're on the country roads because all the roads basically from, uh, I don't know, Glasgow north um, are windy rural roads, some of them single track. And even when, you know, you, you can do 60 mile an hour on the roads, people for some reason only do 25. And that's probably what causes more accidents than anything else is just people's frustration at uh, people not pulling over. But yeah, apart from that, it was it was a really good trip. Yeah. And, and, I, and, I, and I took the ferry, actually. Oh, uh, yeah, you told me that. Yeah. And you said it was possibly a better plan the way we normally go. Yes, possibly. I think it all depends on the, the the timings of it because I think in winter they have reduced sailing, so the you know the the timings might be rubbish for you. But if you're going to arrive, you know, at midday anyway, and uh, you want to get the ferry across, it's only thirty five minutes, and it's probably going to cost you the same in fuel as it does the ferry ticket, and it means you're not driving for that forty minute uh, extra time that you'd normally spend driving. So yeah, worthwhile. That doing. From, that's from Malag. Yeah, that's correct. Yeah. Oh, well, there you go. Top tip. Top tip. Yeah. West Coast Scotland going Sky. Sky Bridge from Malag. Yeah. Uh, I thought I should next just give a shout out to our fantastic patron, patron supporters. Um, we have a whole bunch of top tier supporters now. Uh, this is, for if you don't know, this is one of the ways that you can help support the podcast directly. Uh, we've got different tiers on Patreon. Just search Patreon Pace Brothers. And our top tier supporters uh, for this show are Richard Stevens, Richard McNeil, Ronnie Speakman from rdcontracting.co.uk, Chris Griffith, John Henry Pete, Tom McCraith, um, the guys at South Ayrshire Stalking, Richard Barks, I think I'm trying to read, uh, I'm trying to read a picture that was sent to me of the board, I think it's Richard Barks, James Martington and Connor Brown. Thank you very much, every single one of you, and all of the other Patreon supporters on the lower tiers as well. All of your support is much appreciated. 
Yeah, no, it's uh, it's been like we said before. It's been we've been blown away by the people supporting us, and we greatly appreciate it, uh, big time. And uh, the link for all of that is in the description. We've also, if you haven't noticed, been adding the timings in the description. So if if you want to go back to a podcast and go, where was this person speaking? Because we might have two guests on. Uh, then you'll have like 39 minutes to this minute. Um, that's now in the description, so you'll be able to find uh, what you're looking for much easier, hopefully. And then hopefully in the future, I'll be even be able to do a little bit more of a detailed one if we're doing a really in-depth thing uh, where kind of there's chapters as such covering topics, which has happened in the past. Uh, we can do, you know, from minute 14 to minute 55, we're talking about grouse. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so uh, all for your convenience. Yeah. We had a competition two weeks ago, which was to win a copy of Modern Huntsman Volume 3, and we gave you an animal sound, and not a single person got it right. So we have zero winners for Modern Huntsman Volume 3, so what we're going to have to do is we're going to have to hold on to that, and we're going to have to try and give it away on this show with a new animal sound. Now, Daryl, tell everybody, put them out in their misery, what was the sound that you'd picked for two weeks ago? I apologize. I think I made it a little bit too difficult, but I was actually hoping that some of my Scandinavian friends would get it, uh, but they didn't. Uh, It is, in fact, a lemming. And if you don't know what a lemming is, a lemming is basically a very angry hamster that resides in (laughs) Scandinavia. And if you go on YouTube, there is thousands of videos of that noise. So I would have thought they would have got it. And it's quite a distinctive noise because I heard it last time it was in Norway. Um, but no, sadly no one got it. There were some people that was actually quite close. I think we should play it again now just so that people can hear what it is. So this is what a lemming sounds like. And so... Now we got to come up with a new sound for this week's show, uh, which we're going to insert here. So hopefully, at least one person can guess that sound correctly for the show. And if you do... Um, it's going to be a bit easier than the lemming. Then all you've got to do is contact the show via email or via social media. Tag us in something that tells us what the answer is. We'll also put it up on our Instagram story and on social media. Uh, the actual sound, that is, like we did, like we did last uh, for the last show. And uh, we will pick... Uh, the winner at random from all of the correct answers. And for those of uh, you who don't know, the reason why we're doing uh, this fantastic giveaway is Modern Huntsman, as of uh, a good few shows ago now, became a partner in the podcast. Uh, So they are uh, helping to support us, bring you great interviews from around the world. Yeah, which is awesome. And and I now have Volume 3 in the office, which I've seen for the first time last week. We made sure other people were getting the orders first. 
And I've seen a lot of pictures being taken. Uh, from, can you hear the dogs barking I in the can, background now? I can hear them now, yeah. <laughs> See, I wasn't lying. It wouldn't be our podcast if there wasn't a dog disturbing the show in some way. <laughs> True. Yeah, that's been a common theme for the last four years, pretty much. Uh, but I was just, what I was trying to say before I got interrupted by the dogs uh, was that I've seen a lot of pictures coming through, either people tagging us or modern huntsmen themselves as volume three lands on the desks of people around the world and the feedback has been incredible already yeah no, it really has been and if you are ordering volume uh, two and three and uh, we've had a number of emails they will arrive at different times uh, they are sent from two different locations and so the timings will be different on them so if you're wondering oh, i've received one but i've not got the other that's the reason why and uh, if you have no idea what we're talking about, uh, you definitely need to check out the Modern Huntsman website. Just Google Modern Huntsman. It'll be the first thing that comes up. Uh, it is a f- fantastic publication which launched last year. Um, volume 1 and 2 sort of blew everything out of the water. Volume 3 expands on that further. I think it's the best yet. And it is essentially sort of rewriting the narrative of hunting and what it is and why it's relevant in the modern world so it basically if you like this podcast you're going to fall in love with the modern huntsman publication and uh, if you are wondering because we've also had a few messages of people asking about how they can get their hands on volume one there will be at some point another run of what volume one but it's completely sold out and uh, I imagine yep. if you want to get your hands on Volume 2, you need to do that relatively soon as well because that will be going the same way as Volume 1. But in the future, there will be runs of them, uh, but just not this minute in time. Um, and I suppose that brings us to what this podcast is all about. So this podcast we recorded in the States in March, I think, when we were there this year, yeah. uh, with Jack Evans. Now, you've heard from Jack Evans before because Jack Evans was... Uh, uh, on the podcast with Logan Young um, from the Bear Trust. Uh, they're both part of the Bear Trust. Um, so you've heard a little bit from him before, but we were really focusing on the Bear Trust and what they, they do and basically talking about bears all around the world. Whereas this is far more focused on Jack himself, a bit of his life story. It's a combination of the meaning of life and hunting, this podcast. It's really, I, I because it's been so long since we recorded it, I'd forgotten quite a lot of it. Uh, and it was brilliant to to go through and edit it and listen to the stories that Jack was telling again. And coincidentally, uh, Jack has a fantastic piece in Volume 3 Modern Huntsman. So what a beautiful tie-in. And it's all about um, grizzly bears. Well, I'm I'm actually excited to re-listen to this this show because I also have forgotten because it was recorded pretty late at night um, during was actually, probably yeah. one of the most scary and horrendous drives of my life uh, in Montana while it was snowing and I was in uh, a vehicle that was definitely not designed for snow in any way, shape, or form. <laughs> I'm amazed I actually got it back. Well, you did in one piece, thankfully. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, you relate. To, you relate to the uh, the rather nice event that he had going on with some friends. Uh, but we did manage to steal a bit of Jack's time and record this podcast. So um, I think we won't hold you up any further. Uh, and I do hope that you enjoy the show. Jack, welcome to the Into the Wilderness podcast. I'm going to start off by saying this is probably one of the coolest rooms we have ever recorded a podcast in. 
Thank you. Thank you. It's I appreciate truly it. Epic. Y'all are most welcome. Uh, it's been great. You've uh, been quite the host tonight. Um, it's been good getting a chance to meet you and and your uh, and your friends and Logan, who we're going to be doing a, a podcast with all about the Bear Trust um, just in a couple of days' time. And if it wasn't dark up here, we would also be... Daryl arrived here in the dark yeah. because he was away doing something else today. But there do, is the most do, spectacular view. I had to do a rally stage coming up the driveway. Of course, yeah. I'm glad you survived that. <laughs> it's it great having it. y'all here intact. But yeah. I do wish we were gazing at the bridges just now. I know. We can imagine. It's when Tyler's been, as we've been driving around, he's been saying, oh, you know, this is the Beartooth mountain range and this is the, this is the bridges. And I was like, it's just so cool because... The history mm. that is connected to those. Well, do you know this this uh, canyon, Bridger Canyon, was named by Jim Bridger, who is the he's the young kid in the Revenant, in the Revenant, in the yeah, true story it, of he he you know continued his career in the wilderness. I mean, he was quite the pioneer, surprisingly. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, yeah, he elected to stay out here and yeah. uh, got a canyon named after him. Do you know why? Because I asked I asked um, Tyler that that question on the way. I was like, okay, obviously I know the character, I yeah. know his place in history, but was there something significant about this canyon that he was named? Here? Well, this was a continuation of the Bozeman Trail, which was um, it was sort of a, a new route for fur trappers. You know, another way, another way into the Northwest. Okay, a bolder way. You know, because <laughs> you've you've seen the terrain out I here. Have, it ain't yeah. easy. So. Um, yeah, he kind of, I, you know, I guess this was, this was just an unexplored route, but it's an easy route into the, into the plains North here towards Great Falls and that kind of thing. So, um, I don't know. It's nice to drive around and imagine, imagine what it would be like to walk into this. Yeah. Well, that's what exactly what I've been doing as I've been driving around today. I've been thinking of all these characters that I've read about. Mm. I'm just thinking at some point they put their feet here first. Yeah. Which is, it's kind of like mind blowing to think about it. First in their minds. First and well, yeah. Sorry, yeah. As a, as one of the pioneers, they were there first. Of yeah. course, the the there was native peoples there long before it's before them. Special though, yeah. We've been spoiled while we've been here. I mean, you where we're sitting right now, you're not that far from Yellowstone. No, not at all. I mean, an hour. Uh, Daryl, you were just you were just gazing look, into Yellowstone this afternoon, l- looking at it the entire day. Yeah, that's that's it's a special I, place, isn't it? For sure. There's What's a, it like to live here? I mean, there's there's so much going on. One of my favorite things is this is the first winter that I've spent out here. And uh, you just see how you're kind of exploring the possible adaptations of this environment. Mm. You know, it's uh, it, the place is lush, multicolored in the summertime. You know, you see a change to fall. You, you get to spend all this time out in the woods hunting, that kind of thing, getting to know it. And then it turns into this white world where it's, it, it feels more silent because yeah. there's all this snow everywhere. It's just, it's, it's bare, it's clean, it's, 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 it's this brightening weather, you know, that just comes from the snowpack on the ground. And, uh, and it's, that's, that's a whole world of its own, you know. You it's have like to, two diff, totally different places. You have to snowshoe up to go outside. Yeah. Or, and you start or, to ta- see or your, take a horse like Daryl did today. I, <laughs> or, or an Argo cat to get to your house. <laughs> that kind of thing. Yeah. With snow yeah. tracks on it. I've never seen an Argo with snow tracks on it like that That was before. necessary. Yeah. Because all your cars are parked <laughs> to the bottom of the hill. Yeah, they don't go. <laughs> no, we had, to, we had to get all Russian with that. We had, to, we had to put the tracks on, drive the tank, but I mean... It, when once you get used to that kind of that, that different way of getting around, that different way of being out here, you start to see it differently, and to see your backyard change, mm. uh, you know, between worlds over the course of the year, 
It's, special. Yeah, it's spectacular. I mean, it, it makes this place like constantly alluring. When I'm here, I feel like I feel like you're you always have this energy to get outside. You know, it it kind of demands an exploration. You. It you is. Know? Well, when we arrived, there were mule dealers sitting out here, Daryl. Just there's like a hill behind yeah. here, and uh, there was a whole group of mule deer, and we had a telescope set up in wow. the in the room that we were just in downstairs, just looking and watching them. I got got within probably three meters of one today just on the horse because yeah. it i don't think it noticed us because you're so silent with the when you're walking yeah um especially when it's a bit more clear with the horses the deer hadn't really noticed us approach and then it got a bit of a fright when <laughs> it was spectacular yeah, yeah and then yeah. Whoosh, gone it's sweet when you really start to coexist mm. you know when they just walk up to your house and you walk by, right by them yeah i mean well, that's one of the unique things about having a purpose of being out there especially when you when you're hunting is that feeling that you are no longer just observing from the road driving past, but yeah. you're participating in it. Yeah. You know, I think a lot of people think hunting is some kind of mission, but I can't overemphasize how special the very practice is. And by practice, I mean the way you look, right? It's um, it's it's, it's a constant attention to the horizon to the ridges, to, you know, to where you spot animals in the shadows of trees, in the brush. Once you start to look for animals, once you learn how to spot them, you know, they don't, they don't stand out like silhouettes like you originally imagined, like I imagined when I was young. And as you fine tune that sense over the course of your life, you start to, you start noticing, I don't know, it's almost like the, the, the contours, the textures, the patterns of the, of the, of the hillscapes that you're looking at, they, they demand a greater attention for you. And that's, that is an active practice. If I'm hiking, I mean, I, I hike, hike a lot I hike in places where I can't hunt and it's just not the same, it's not the same it's thrill. It's weird that, isn't you're it? You're not engaged. It is strange. Visually. You're, you're absolutely engaged right. Sensorily. Yeah. You let your mind wander. When you're hunting, I mean, it, it clears your mind. It, uh, just, just because of the attention you put into it. And honestly, what what occupies your mind is not the end goal, you know? When you're looking on the hills, it's not to spot the thing that you're looking for, the the giant elk that you want to take home. It's, it's literally just to see what's out there, you know? I mean, I think, uh, I mean, I hunt without expectation, you know? And that's it's a good, good way to go. That's it, the only way it's really fulfilling. It is a good outlook, though. Mm-hmm. Yeah, keeps you busy, keeps you keeps you attentive, keeps you learning, and keeps you humble. And that's one of the things we were talking about earlier this afternoon is the the humility that's necessary in any form of relating to an ecosystem that is greater than yourself, relating to animals that are greater than yourself. You know, you're at a you're at a disadvantage when you're searching for animals. You don't have the sensory sensory capacity, and uh, you have to approach that with humility. And that's like the constant passive teacher out here is is the is what you're missing and what you're trying and you're to get better always at. missing a lot <laughs> yeah funny thing to think about what you don't see it is mm. it's, it's sometimes it's what you don't see that's important yeah yeah but i think it all impacts you it absolutely does yeah now you've had a an in you've got a an interesting overview on wildlife and habitat because you have spent time in quite a variety of places around the world just give uh, our listeners uh, a little variety of 
how your life story has taken shape because you've you spent a lot of time in Africa. We talked about a little bit about that earlier, but uh, not in not in a great deal of detail. Yeah. Well, um, what took you over there? <clears throat> well, I grew up in Tennessee, and uh, and I'm always thankful for that because I never really never really liked the place. I'm originally from Texas. I never really um, I never really felt comfortable there, but it's where I spent it's where I spent most of my youth and. Uh, and it was growing up in the suburbs in Knoxville, Tennessee, that kind of drove me to the mountains, uh, the Smoky Mountains, outside of Knoxville, and um, found a kind of like, found a kind of solitary solace out there. Um, just, just on my own, found something that kind of made sense to me, and uh, tried to educate myself in what lay beyond our little region. And from a young age, was looking forward to was deeply looking forward to pursuing everything that lay outside. So the day I turned 18, I graduated from high school. And about five days after that, I got on a plane to Tanzania where I had offered to work. As you do. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, I felt like it's as I had to do. Yeah. It made perfect sense to me. Yeah. And um, I had volunteered to sort of work for free and pay my own way as an apprentice to a professional hunter there in Tanzania. And... It's funny. I it, it took like seventy two hours door to door, you know, from when I left Tennessee to when I was falling asleep in this tent after after I had flown all the way to Dar es Salaam. Took a little flight to Dodoma, you know, driven five hours through the bush with people who just, you know, picked me up who I didn't even share a language with, you know, before I landed in this camp um, to meet this guy I'd met once before who I. I would go on to apprentice with over the course of five years. And as I was falling asleep in that tent that night, I felt like I had always, I, I felt like I was so comfortable with what lay around me. You know, I, I remember falling asleep and being like, I am in the hills of central Tanzania. And I knew I would be. And um, by the next day, I, I felt like I'd been there for years. You like, know? And now I'm living. Yeah, yeah, and, and entirely on my own, and let the story begin. You know, it was kind of it kind of like brushed the context from everything, and it was it was my own journey to make. And so what was your drive? Like, did you feel restless? Did you feel like there was something? Because that's a big move. I mean, it's a big move anytime, but at eighteen, it's still pretty young to go I, the other side of the world. And to there's a, a place lot. Like there's that. a lot here. Yeah, in U.S. Got, in the U.S., <laughs> there's a lot to to explore here. What was the yeah, what was it deep down inside that made you feel like I gotta go? I gotta go there. That's a good question. Because I, 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 having done not to the same, not over the same length of time as you were there, but I know that feeling. Yeah. Because I did something very yeah. similar. Yeah, like we just. So, but but trying to articulate it's difficult. It's like this this calling from a distance that you can't quite make out. It's a hard question because it goes on, you know. I don't. Um, right now, I live in South Africa, uh, which which is not as comfortable a place as, as as we're sitting in now, as my family's home or anything like it. Um, I don't have as much work going on there as I do here, but I I I still feel like I owe it to myself to keep trying to discover things beyond what what's easy, beyond what I'm used to, and so far that I'm able, you know. That's why I've ended up in this. Um, pursuing journalism is, is to stay out and keep asking questions, keep going to places that demand new things of me. And I've really been negotiating that with my, with myself over the past year because I kind of realized, well, lately, 
in July, I um <clears throat> I went to Ethiopia for a month just to walk on foot between these Orthodox monasteries that are carved into the cliffs. And I did that because as, as a continuation of this lifelong habit of seeking meaning and self-understanding and sort of trying to prove myself to myself in these like solitary adventures. And it was tricky because that was that was how I feel like I got to know myself that way when I was a kid. Um, life made sense to me once I ended up in Tanzania. From Tanzania, I went to Edinburgh for four years and I was going back and forth. High five Scotland. Hi, yeah. <laughs> that kind of thing. But um, I mean, I was always was always moving somewhere and it, like, it, it wasn't easy. Um, I was, I was fortunate to be able to do it, but it takes a toll on, uh, on, you know, you, you miss your family. You, you, you don't really have any roots. So you don't feel at home anywhere. And, but I felt like I had to do it. It's, it's hard to explain. When I was in Ethiopia, I went on this insane journey, which it was only after like 15 days walking around the desert in Tigray, looking for clifftop monasteries, really hungry because <laughs> there's not that much food out there. You know, I was eating like cactus fruit and dates, you know, and a jar of peanut butter for like two weeks. And it was only on like the 15th day that I realized, you know what I was seeking here? I was, I finally got the thing that I was always looking for, which is the adventure that I couldn't handle. Right. I was always trying to push it to something that would make me genuinely uncomfortable. Yeah. But I've, of course, I could not prepare for what that would feel like. No, because that's the point. Exactly. Yeah. I discovered it, right? And then I was still like 15 days from Addis Ababa on foot. <laughs> so you were halfway through. Yeah. And I mean, there wasn't anywhere to go but that forward. Forward and therefore back. But I was on my own. And uh, and I um, the very next night, you know, I, I wrote myself a letter in my little journal in a in like a, a, a child's notebook that I had bought, you know. And uh, I, I had this like nice realization, like maybe I don't have to prove anything to myself anymore. Honestly, I feel kind of complete. I feel like I can, I feel like I've, you know, made up my 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 sense of self. And, and I'd honest, honestly, I just, I just miss my home. <laughs> you know, I can go home now. And the very next day I, I was approaching this monastery, one that I, I, I definitely wanted to climb into because these are very special places. These are, these are places that were built in like the ninth century, carved out of the rock by ascetic um, Christian monks to cr sort of create a space where you're in the rock, you're separated from the earthly world below and you're gazing out at the horizon. And really all you can see from these little globes in the rock is the horizon. You can't see the ground, so it's huh. it's it's they were made, designed like that. Yeah, so it's made to get you focused on <laughs> on something wow. vast, right? So it's it has a strange effect on your mind sitting up there for a few hours, you know. And um, there was one of these that I particularly wanted to visit just for its remoteness and the fact that you had to like climb an ancient rope to get up there, and then uh, it's lined with a uh, it's lined with frescoes of these monks that were painted in like this, this natural pigment paint in like 900 and haven't peeled away just cause the climate's so dry. I mean, it's, this is a window into like early Christianity and just, you know, mixed with African mysticism and animism even. I mean, it was, it was far out. I really wanted to get to this thing. And as I approached it, it was getting dark. So I decided I'd camp at the base. And, um, <clears throat> that night I, uh, I had a little bit of cell service. So I made a few calls and, uh, the sun was going down, the moon was rising up, and 
you know, there, there's always a moment uh, of every night where the sky turns from like blue to indigo, mm. and you rarely notice it. Maybe some people go their whole lives without noticing it. But if if you're completely still, like I've been before, like in in leopard blinds, you know, or just just sometimes you're looking at the moon and you notice it flip over. I noticed it this night, and after one second, and two seconds, and three seconds, I just heard. Whoop, whoop, right next to me and I grabbed my flashlight and I shined it and there were these two coin eyes right these two like sickly green little orbs like 40 meters to my right <laughs> and I shined to my like behind me and there's another pair like 50 meters I shined below me down the hill there's one like 25 meters and I didn't even look to the left Right, I just grabbed my pack and my knife and I ran to the left. And in that moment, I knew, I knew that I was dead. I, it, it was certain, right? It wasn't, and it was strange because it wasn't a feeling. I didn't feel any sadness, you know? In other moments of my life, I've been, I, I've feared for my life. And that's a very big emotional upheaval, you know, that gives you a kick of adrenaline and gets you running. This time I knew I was dead. There was no emotion to it. There was a little bit of there was a little bit of regret, like I'm sorry, mom, dad, you know, like I'm like I, away and I haven't spoken to you for weeks. Yeah, I'm like I regret this, you know, I I regret what this is gonna do to you. <laughs> but I didn't feel any sorrow, sadness. I didn't feel any like um, I mean it it made sense to me, you know. And I ran to the left and um, I started twirling my flashlight. And barking like a dog and shouting. <laughs> <laughs> my knife in one hand and my and my like heavy, heavy backpack on. I start running down this shell cliff, you know, like a banshee, you know, knowing that I was dead, but I didn't, you know, I wasn't like, I wasn't overcome or anything. I was like, just, this is it, you know. I had one other thought in that brief moment where I was standing still and it was like, I remember that last time I hunted hyena, you know, when I was, when I was an apprentice and in uh, Zambia, I helped a guy shoot a hyena and I'm like, well, this is just, <laughs> this is karma. <laughs> this is, this is fair. Yeah. I accept it. You know, hunter becomes a hunted. And I, and I kept running and I, and, and as I was running, I mean, it taken me like 45 minutes to get up this hill. It took me five minutes to get off. <laughs> I think I somersaulted twice, <laughs> you know, I, I was lucky I didn't like eat my own knife there, you know, in my left hand. But um, flashing my light around, I saw two other, you know, orbs, pairs of orbs on the hills. I mean, it's like they were all coming for me. I got back down to the nearest road and nobody drives on the roads at night there, you know. But I just walked off the road and, and I get down there and I'm like, now what? Now they're just going to circle back around. You know, I had, I think I had shocked them. Hyenas are pack hunters, you know. They they hunt more than they scavenge. It's a misconception that they're purely scavengers. Um, but I don't, they don't go chasing things. They don't go fighting things, right? And I think because I disrupted the strategy of them surrounding me, that they hesitated for a moment and didn't, didn't really just get a chance to, to pass. Yeah, yeah. With, you know, so shouts to that LED flashlight, you know. So you're <laughs> you're on life too now. Theoretically, <laughs> but I was like, I mean, I, I bumped them, you know, I slid out of that and they're just going to circle around. But then, then the saving bit came, then the outside grace came and that was a single motorcycle headlight 
bobbing over the horizon. And I stood in front of that guy and shined my light on my own face, which must have looked like a ghost because, I mean, I look like you, Byron. I'm like, I'm like nearly translucent, you know? And I'm out there, you know, this this white boy, this yeah, you're, 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 is wailing even, on the you're highway. You're even more ginger than I am. Right, yeah. And, uh, and I'm, I, I wave this guy down and uh, jump on the back of his motorbike. What did, you, could, could, did he speak English? No, no need. I was like, and he understood. He get, he's like, get on the back. Oh, uh, tremendous! Uh, what a what a frightening but awesome experience. But that made me reconsider. You know, like what what am I doing out here? I mean, I'm trying to answer your question with all this story, and and I'm still not entirely sure. Very very few people in the world get to experience something on that level. Yeah, today. I mean. And and you know it's it's not something to be proud of because I might as well have died, right? But it it was an insight into the thing that I, I was looking for. So I guess to answer your question, Byron, I I don't know, and I'm trying to understand it myself, mm. you know. But I'm you're I'm, finding yourself. <laughs> yeah, but that's what you were. I I I think most people go through that. They go through a period of not really quite understanding what their place is on the planet. Mm. I, I can think of a couple of people. I know I was, you know, I've been one of them at some point. I'm not sure I've truly found it, but I've gone through periods of disappearing to Africa, actually. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And uh, I've been in India doing work and disappearing into the mountains there for shorter periods of time and having small, profound moments alone. Yeah. And it's it's important, I think. Yeah. It's very important. Well, we have our place in the natural world, you know, and it's, um, I think a lot of people separate themselves from that just, just because, you know, it's, um, it, it is a privilege to be able to, to get out there and get out there alone and, and be able to explore it. And, and, but when you do, you feel, you, you feel innately that, you know, nature never rejects you, Right. Well, we are part of it. We should be. Exactly. A lot of us aren't really. Our our minds separate us. But I think after about four days of walking alone, because it's kind of a hobby of mine, (laughs) after day four, you've kind of thought about everything that you've ever thought about. (laughs) You've, You've gone through the memory bank and you find yourself very present, you know, and you find yourself in good company. I've had other breakdowns out there. I mean, I've 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 had horrible moments of missing my friends, my family, and things like that. But they, you know, it, that keeps me returning to them. It's never, it's never the natural environment where you feel out of place. Ultimately, it's always a kind of home anywhere in the world. You know, it's it's without. Um, it kind of exposes the way you judge yourself in your mind as ridiculous. What was your apprenticeship like? That must have been, I mean, that must have been life-altering in itself. That was that was the greatest adventure over. <laughs> so it was five years total. Yeah, but five years. Uh, I was I was only there for like three months at a time because the rest of the time I was at University of Edinburgh. Yeah. Okay. So it was, yeah. it was in your off time effectively every yeah, year. It yeah. Back good, and forth. good use of your off time. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, you you, you spend uh, the worst possible nine months in Edinburgh. From September to May, yeah, you know, and you need some brightness. Honestly, I wouldn't have survived one without the other. No, you know, but um, but yeah, that that was that that was huge. Um, it was never really the center of my life. I I recognized it always as 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 an adventure, and and I, uh, you know, I, I told everybody I wanted to be a professional hunter. I wanted to be a guide and everything, but 
when I was an apprentice, I was doing stuff like camp management, messing with supplies, uh, doing little patrols, um, building huts, stuff like that. And I was doing this all with, the, with our workers, you know, um, like so, sometimes halfway in English, you know, and, uh, and always on the ground with the materials of the ground. And that was, I, I almost took that for granted because after university, I moved down to Zambia to take this job up. And I started actually guiding these safaris. I started working with the clients, you know, and hunting in Africa is, you know, there's a, we all know there's a whole lot of this that goes on where you have people coming and with, with certain kind of expectations to just harvest these large trophies and pay a bunch of money for it and, and, uh, head home in maximum comfort. And, um, by no means is that all of the clientele. But but, but it, it, it exists. It goes on and you have to cater to it. And the fortunate thing about that, the thing that I will always support as long as it functions, is that people, no matter their intentions, are, are spending this money, giving it to outfitters uh, who, who are the only people in these economies who have a vested interest in pre- preserving the wildlife in the long term. They're charged with the responsibility of, of sometimes millions of hectares that would otherwise, you know, the, otherwise the government would not be able to afford to do anti-poaching, to do management here, you know, and this money, regardless of the intentions, is inadvertently doing good, you know. I mean, ha- I mean, trophy fees, they, they go directly to the game department, and insofar as the game department uh, can't handle this, these huge tracts of land, the hunting companies pick up the slack. You know, and and we know hunters, outfitters, for the most part, they have, they they do it for the joy of it. Mm-hmm. You know, they do it for little pay and and constant effort. You know, because they actually come to care about these ecosystems and these animals. So, it's a passion for them. Yeah, and and this system is functional in countries like Zambia and countries like Tanzania. You know, I'm not saying it works everywhere, but it's it's really a wonderful way to get um to get capitalist reality of our world working for this great cause of conservation. However, the way that's money the way that money is raised of course is you take these people hunting. And when I started doing that, I found myself really separated from the from the thing that I'd loved about really immersing in the ecosystem. I found myself um, you know, doing a lot of laughing at people's jokes and, you know, uncorking You're wine in the bottles. Ent- entertainment industry now. Yeah, much more so. Bit of a babysitter, bit of a tour guide, you know, but mm. with um with a bloody objective. And very quickly, I felt like I was I was kind of monetizing my passion, you know, and I, I looked at it and it's like, this is a job that you do for 24 hours a day, seven days a week, nine months a year. There's no halfway doing it, you know, you commit, you have to commit to it all the, all the way if you're going to even get through in that yeah. industry. And um, if you're going to even know enough to be safe and responsible about it, you know, it has to be your whole life. And, um, and Honestly, I was there to learn. I was learn, there to learn the ecosystem, learn the culture, learn the nature culture of the place, soak in that, adopt something new into my consciousness. And I did that as an apprentice and as a as a guide, you know, I was kind of being ushered into the the guiding job. I never actually got the license because I uh, I didn't want to cuz you had to do the guiding time. Yeah, and yeah. I didn't I didn't want to take that turn in my life. So I went back to writing. 
And that's um, that's always been a talent of mine. And and this this was a shock, right? Because I had engineered everything to go via PH, go via Frontier. <laughs> it's Man. strange how sometimes the things we seek are not really what we're after. <laughs> it, is, it was wild how quickly that turned around on me. Yeah. You know, because I got out there and I immediately realized it. <laughs> you know, I did two safaris, two and a half. And then I was like, no, nah, this is not. <laughs> I was like, oh, I can't do it. And yeah. then it's like, reorganize, you know? The interesting thing with this is that I know that we have very similar mindsets and we can appreciate why, as you've just explained, why hunting, especially in places like that, is so vital for the survival of the species that are there right. and maintaining the habitat that exists and in many instances actually improving it. Yeah. But here we're having this moral battle within our own heads and in our discussion in this podcast yeah. with the form of hunting from the individual basis. So you can... It's very easy for me to understand why from the outside, from people who are completely removed from it, who might never go to Africa and who don't hunt and don't fish and maybe never even walk into the mountains in their own country, yeah. do not understand that at all and think it's abhorrent. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, what they're, what they're witnessing is is the same contradiction that we're aware of, you know? I I found that moral contradiction in the way of conducting those hunts, you know? And it repulsed me. However... Uh, in the abstract, I still support that form of conservation. Absolutely. Because and, it works. Yeah, and I have an immense amount of respect for the people who make it happen. You know, they're some of my dearest friends, right? And and it's, it's I mean, it's <clears throat> it's what works. I, I like to think that it is a form of transition to a better world, right? Mm -hmm. You know, it's um it's taking this reality of, of things that run on money, of a world that runs, you know, um, in a lot of ways by the influence of people's egos is converting it to something to a greater good and so these people who 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 engineer this who make it happen based on their own passion and their own concern for something bigger than themselves these hunting guides these outfitters these game scouts these trackers these skinners these cooks you know they all need yeah. a, a job and a place and a, and a meaning and a purpose yeah and i think they found it you know because it, it is a world of passionate people you know, it is a world of, of really insightful, really hyper aware people and they're doing a they're doing a great thing, you know. Personally, I guess I guess I felt like deep down, you know, when I when I came to ask myself what should I be doing, I thought, well maybe maybe talking about this, maybe writing about this, you know, something that I'm actually good at. I mean, um I wasn't like a stellar PH or anything. I had only spent a few summers, and and I I knew I didn't have the, I didn't I knew I didn't have to p the patience with all the compromises to become the best at this. So I thought, let me let me return to journalism. Let me try to talk about this story in a way it's not talked about. Because that's one of the things that was always bothering me is exactly what we would talk about around dinner, and it wasn't the animals. What did uh, you study at Edinburgh? Uh, politics. <laughs> <laughs> And, uh, but I tell you what, in my last semester of studying politics, which was, um, immensely unfulfilling. <laughs> <laughs> so many people must, must think the same thing with their degrees. They study. Unfulfilling. <laughs> I, I did slip into a anthropology class. Oh, that's cool. Called humans and other species. And this was all based on a sort of. Uh, modern, you know, like post 2000 movement in anthropology based around um, how we connect to species beyond ourselves and kind of rejecting this, this trend, this, um, this inhibiting factor of anthropology 
of anthropocentrism, meaning, you know, taking everything from our own perspective, um, our own human perspective. In anthropology, ideally, you adopt the you adopt the perspective of another society when you're studying another society. Why not extend that to species, right? How could we know the full world if we only have one lens of it? So it's it's a lot of like mental acrobatics. Yeah, it is. Um, <laughs> but it requires a whole lot of relating. And I realized almost immediately on like the second one of those classes, this is what this is what hunting is. This is multi-species ethnography. This is trying to understand, trying to see things from the other perspective. You know, you go out there and you try to match the sensory percep- perceptibility of other animals. You try to understand how they move. And you try and think the way they think. You spend the whole time in your head trying to get into their head. Yeah. You know, and, and I don't mean that in like an acquisitive or combative way. I mean, you try to see the world as they see it. And you do. I mean, you know you make progress. You know you start seeing things differently. Yeah, you do. Yeah, your senses change. You start appreciating. It It all comes through the matrix of appreciation. You know, now when you smell sagebrush, you oh, know it. I'm never going to be able to get that's <laughs> That's with me forever. Yeah. Today when I was when we were riding through it on the horses, you could just smell it. The sagebrush. Oh, and it, it, in terms of photography, it pictures really well as well. Take, I, I spent so many, so many years reading about sagebrush. <laughs> And it and that was a that, that's a great example of how you can never really understand something until you're there because I, I read about it I see what people say I've listened to talks that people have given about it but when I put my hands on it for the first time and I smelt it yeah that's where it's meaningful you, 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 that's cool you you can't fully appreciate it until you're standing in it mm-hmm. you could buy some sage from little I think it's different. That's not different. sage. Yeah, it's different. No. Yeah, no, that's it's a like sage. everything in little. It's just a coffee. <laughs> it's it's off-brand sage. Yeah. Off-brand. <laughs> yeah, I'm. Just, I'm just trying to think of a. There was a quote. I can't remember who it's from. It's something about yeah, your conservation has to happen from with your feet on the ground or something to that effect. Yeah, you, you have to be there. It is a. It is a practice, you know, and that's that's why I, that's why I use the term ethnography. Ethnography is like sort of the acted practice, the fieldwork of anthropology. If anthropology is theory and thinking, ethnography is observation, you know, and and hunting is both. It's thinking about it and it's observing it. And and I am I've never studied science or biology, you know. I'd like to one day, but. Um, Maybe with this new job, you will have time to. Yeah, or maybe I'll be forced to. Forced to, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, um, but it's, um, I mean, everything I know about it, everything I appreciate about it, it comes through observation, you know? And uh, that's, that's I, I almost like to keep it that way. Mm. Because I think to, to try to extend our intellect, you know, I mean, like, how many words can you write about Sage? You won't know it any better. No. <laughs> right? <laughs> so, like... Um, yeah, so this practice of hunting for me has always been this um, this this way to leap into relating to. It, it's not necessarily just your the the thing you're hunting that species, right? It's not like I've I've never consciously thought I'd need to get into the mind of these deer. <laughs> you know, I gotta be a deer. <laughs> yeah, I gotta be the deer. Yeah, <laughs> no, no, it's uh, it's 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 much more about I don't know noticing what matters to deer. You know, noticing um. It's it's all intuition based, you know that that form of exploration. It's always um, it's always you exercise that 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 intangible sense of intuition, you know. And it's something what what's so beautiful to me is that we're actually capable of it, mm. you know. Some of my mentors, some of the people I apprenticed under, 
even my own father who's hunted all his life um my brother who's a very keen very he's got a he's got an amazing acumen and amazing intuition for these kind of things um they've inspired me to to understand that um that you can acquire these extrasensory understandings you know it's not all book knowledge you can you can feel a leaning in your heart and follow that ridge line and end up where you need to be and end up at a discovery you know that's real that's this, the beauty of it this whole i mean so many people diminish this gut feeling i mean gut feeling is a is a gross and terrible term for what i'm talking about i don't know <laughs> you know but it's accurate you know but i'm just saying it's so much more it's so much more beautiful and strange and wonderful to explore so you went into writing, but how? It's like that's uh, what was the what was the avenues that you sought to undertake that? Well, I um, I had stories to tell, mm-hmm. um, and I've always enjoyed that. Um, basically, I, I I met people who were like minded. Mm-hmm. Uh, I met people like Logan Young, who we'll talk to yeah. tomorrow or Saturday, um, who. Who had these similar ideas, you know? Who saw the opportunity to have these conversations that that I've I've never heard, you know? Basically, I had these pent up things that I wanted to say, mm-hmm. and I hadn't met that many people <laughs> that I could that I could <laughs> have the conversation yeah. with, you know. Then I started to, and then it started to encourage me, yeah. you know. It started to show me that there are and there it are helps outlets you for form that. the opinions in a more articulate way when you have conversations. Absolutely, I mean, like reflection is is such a small part of 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 formulating your ideas, I think. I mean, conversation is where it happens. It's mm-hmm. where it sparks. That's where it continues. Have you, have you written your hyena story before? Okay, that, that hyena story is part of a 28-day slog and emotional roller coaster. And I've had, for three months, I couldn't talk about Ethiopia. It got worse after the hyena thing. But I'll send you the link once it's written. I'm starting to make sense of it. I'm starting to make sense of what happened out there. <laughs> I got really far out. I got almost dehydrated. Got a little bit... Uh, Hallucinogenic. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> and uh, and got quite lost. Got saved by some children. Um, finally ended up climbing this last monastery, which was just insane. Got stuck in a thunderstorm. And yada, yada. It's... Um, so it sounds like that, that was a proper life-defining month. It was, you know, and uh, one of my friends later on, Dennis McCarthy, I, I told him the story as best I could. I was still a little manic then. I still, I was still spouting it out haphazardly. And he was like, he said to me, the fact that, I mean, you've always been pretty articulate and reflective and the fact that you're so lost and useless at explaining this <laughs> shows me this is probably the most important thing that ever happened to you on your own. Yeah. And it might take 30 years for you to understand it. Yeah, and, and what its true impact was. Yeah, and once he said that, I, t- I took the pressure off myself, and I was like, "All right, now I can try to write this humbly." <laughs> <laughs> you know, so far I'm at like fifteen thousand words. Fifteen thousand words in. <laughs> it doesn't even make sense. No. It's well, I'm, I'm wh- still trying to figure it one out. One day, when fifteen thousand words and half the, half a day in. <laughs> yeah, that kind of thing. Because <laughs> it's like, oh, what's uh, you know, what what's the meaning here? You know, you're trying to extricate like, like why was I doing that? I don't know. <laughs> well, one day when it's finished, I'd love to read it. Yeah, I'll send it along. So, where was your um, first outlet for, for for writing, and what your next sort of vision was for where you were going to take your life after that? Oh yeah, I mean, I've I've been writing professionally since I was nine. 
uh, like on occasion. I, I published some stuff in Sports Field when I was a kid. Oh, really? Yeah. Just I know the publication. I've always always enjoyed it. Yeah, yeah. Um, My first publication was the Lego magazine. <laughs> Is it? Yeah. Is it really? Yeah, when I was about 10 years old. Did you write him a letter? I did, yeah. When it was published, so did you Thus. did you build something? I did, yeah. What'd you build? Picture it? This is how this is how old school. It was. I know what you're talking about. <laughs> so you you have to you have to, to take the bloody picture, get your mom to develop it. Oh, again. Two weeks later, you get it, and then you send it in with the letter to the Lego Club explaining what you've built and everything. And they published my picture yeah. in the the Lego magazine. Jesus. With with um with yeah with my picture and my letter. What did you build? I think it was just a spaceship or something. <laughs> 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 they probably, they probably stole that. my design and and made millions from it. Probably, probably, yeah, yeah. definitely, probably not. <laughs> <laughs> oh. They're like spaceships aren't square. Well, I beg to differ. <laughs> <laughs> they don't need to be aerodynamic in space. <laughs> that's that's a good point. I that's never thought very... of that. Well, I mean, wow. profound I mean, moments we can all dream, the time. But <laughs> so I've never written for the Lego magazine. <laughs> oh, well, your career hasn't really made it then. <laughs> I, I had a cartoon uh, in the newspaper when I was eleven. I guess that was the very first publication. Yeah. Um, but then, uh, um, but yeah, uh, it was an off and on thing. You know, it's it, it's my favorite creative outlet, writing, and that makes it bloody torturous yeah <laughs> because because i always feel like i should be writing you know it's hard though because i mean i enjoy writing a lot and i've been writing in different publications for the last 10 years but it it's easy to get carried away and do too much oh, yeah. and get stale oh yeah you just overwrite it yeah you overwrite and you end up like repeating yourself and it's like well this is this is kind of shit yeah the the <laughs> the trick is to i uh, I think is to understand what's important and exactly, and that's where I kind of I refound a passion for it was when I binned a lot of the things I was writing about in, yeah. in hunting. I used to do a lot of rifle reviews and that because I, I love rifles. Yeah, but it was no longer important to me. Mm-hmm. What became important was the conservation story because that's what intrigued me now. Right, and it actually, kind of had nothing to do with hunting. Yeah, it, it had everything to do with hunting because there are great hunting conservation stories. Yeah. But the main focus was always, had become the species in the environment. And yeah. when I found that again, which was like three years ago, and that's what I started to write about, Yeah, my writing got better. It kind of hit Well, you. at least I think it did. Like, this is the story. Yeah. So yeah. This is what I should have been writing about the last 10 years. I'd just like to recommend our listeners, if you ever want to see the greatest example of somebody paring down the important things out of literally their entire life, you must read Barbarian Days by William Finnegan. That's a memoir. Okay. That only includes what's important all throughout. It's it's the most inspiring book I've ever read because it it showed me like this can be done. You don't have to describe every detail, you know. This is a book about a guy who uh spent his life surfing and he tells his whole life story but through surfing, you yeah. know. And it's there's there's a lot about surfing in there, but it's it's about the way his life went, you know. And I found a lot of parallels because Hunting, or at least nature, yeah, nature. I mean, I'm I, I don't even hunt that much anymore. But I, I, I seek the wilderness. I, I chase animals. I'm intrigued by it, and it's kind of taken me all through my life. It's the running theme, you know. And in many ways, it is. It's close to the center of the story, always. You know, the most profound things have always happened with, with nature as a backdrop, you know. I think we can certainly in this room and probably the, the, the folks and friends who are downstairs can appreciate how important 
hunting has been culturally in many countries in the world and how important it has been to us as individual people and how important it has been for some of the great conservation successes and uh, and success stories of species that were on the brink. Right. But so why do you think it is the case that it is such a hard story to sell to the, the sort of the general public? Because we it doesn't matter what country country you're in, it is not something that is particularly palatable. I think it's obvious. I think it's uh, it's this inherent paradox. What we're doing is getting closer to something by killing it, and that's that sounds just purely ironic, oxymoronic, I guess. <laughs> you know, to get closer to nature by by, by taking by it hunting it and. Um, that is that's something that, that's a conversation that we don't hear a lot, you know. It's one we were having earlier this evening, and it's refreshing because I think we should all struggle with this contradiction, this apparent contradiction, you know, as we as we sort of develop as hunters, as outdoorsmen in any way, you know. I mean, fishermen should struggle with this. Um, we should, you know, we should always be reflecting on this kind of thing. Uh, why, why do we do that? Why does that make sense? And that's been, that's been my question over the course of my life. It's like, it's like I was telling you earlier when I, um, I found that when I started hunting alone, um, I, I started really sort of getting it because it removes all the social context, you know, yeah. when I was a kid, you go hunting with your dad and a lot of it's about, about being under the gaze yeah. of your dad, you yeah. know, in a good and a bad way. And, um, and when I was alone, I, I started having my own, you know, pure experience with it, which was raising my own questions, you know, my own doubts. And they were just coming out of, they're just coming out of space. You know, there were things I never thought of before, right? They were sparking like creativity. They were coming from another place. They were coming from the outside world, really blending with the outside world, really confronted to it and really confronted with the amazing fact that if I, if I fully immersed in the ecosystem of an animal I was hunting, really tried to respect it, which is necessary. You know, if you're if you're on foot alone, you don't know much about hunting. You have to you have to learn your way through it. You have to you have to learn this respect. You have to learn this acumen. You have to find the animal. You you know, if if you kill it, that's an that's an amazing thing. It's an amazingly difficult thing. Um, and I would do that, and I would find that I didn't feel bad. To the extent which I felt bad, it was anthropomorphism. You know, it was like all poor thing maybe has a kid you know but i mean elk don't <laughs> they know, don't bull elk like don't <laughs> care about their you know about their cubs after a certain few days and everything that so that was just kind of projection you know of our human senses i didn't feel bad deep down and i started wondering am I, i'm either a psychopath or death is not a bad thing and i'd ride around on this truck in africa worrying about this Right, and you see, there's a there's a lion chewing on a zebra, you know. You think about wolves that kill their own cubs to keep the the herd or the pack safe, mm. you know, well fed, everything like that. You think about bears killing bear cubs to have their primacy. You look at the exchange of life and death in nature, and and it's not sad. It's not sad. I mean, our human emotions and attachments that we that that we put make it sad, and that's fine. Those are noble. I'm not decrying those, you know. But it leads to this great question: Is there morality in nature? And I think, honestly, it's led me to believe that morality is a human invention, and it's a damn useful one. It's a vital one. You know, there's nothing wrong with it. There's nothing small about it. It's an incredible thing that we created in order to get to get along with each other. 
you know, to have this empathy, to get to get over our worst leanings, to create literally to create a better world, and we lift each other up through morality. But I think death has this uh, negative connotation. You know, I mean, of of course it will it will always make you sad if somebody if you lose someone you love. But I don't think it's the end. That's what that's what hunting showed me. Death is not the end. It's nothing really to be feared. You know, loss is to be grieved. Death is not to be feared. Because it's part of the cycle. It's part of the cycle. And and that's, I mean, the cycle is the way of explaining it. I mean, I didn't feel it. I did not feel the sadness from from something going if it was hunted. You know, from a zebra that was hunted by a lion. It's not sad. And if I properly hunt, an, you know, an elk all the way, I don't feel sad. Now, I have felt, I have... I've shot things before in a rush. It was easy. I didn't connect with it. I didn't connect with the animal, the ecosystem. I didn't give it any respect. I just shot it. You know, it's some, something you do when you're younger. And I feel bad about that because I feel like I was consuming or wasting, you know? If you shot something that wasn't really necessary to shoot, it's consumption. That's wrong, you know? That ain't right. Just, just functionally and also it should touch you in your morality. But this exchange of life and death, if it's really worked for, if it's really immersed in, what you're doing there is you're going out into nature and you are existing on its daily plane. You know, animals' business day involves life and death. And if you get in amongst that, you're not betraying anything. You know, you're getting to the ultimate scale of, you're, you're really relating to it. I think some animals, like, um, like we were talking about bears earlier, I don't, I'm not sure if you can fully... I don't know. This is different for everyone. I know some people can can sort of find their relatability and their communication with certain species through through things like intuitive communication. You know, people can profoundly relate to dogs. You know, I don't need to go dog hunting to really to really kind of understand what my dog thinks because yeah. we have this special relationship. But take bears for example. You know, like a solitary male bear, he, he spends his days walking around in the woods alone and hunting. So if I'm going to understand him, what am I going to do? I'm going to go spend my days walking in the woods, solitary, alone, and hunting. And uh, yeah, in Alaska one time, I had uh, probably the most <laughs> the most striking experience of my life after after hunting down a bear like that. And it just felt so wild and so right and so opening of my heart <laughs> to have acted like a bear and been brought into contact with a bear. You know, and I happened to kill it instead of it killing me. But I mean, it was like I was right amongst the ecosystem. I remember after I had my my hands in this thing, after my hands were covered in blood, I looked up and and I, was, I stood up straight and I looked out at the sky at this endless tundra on the Alaskan Peninsula, and it was like I felt like my chest was wide open and the whole world <laughs> was pouring into me because I felt so in tune with what these animals were doing and what the animal part of myself, you know. Was able, you'd, be, you'd become it was able to express you know what I've always been, right? Is it, it that was there was just a, a self discovery and and not not intellectually, you know, in the most surprising way, and that's what that's that's what makes me want to keep hunting. It's it's something. I mean, you put it incredibly well, and I th- I think it's something that most people. Well, I hope most people who who hunt will be able to grab glimmers yeah. of relatability to. Oh, can you? But I think it's Yeah, yeah, no, I, def- I, I, I definitely can. But 
it's such a it's such a deep experience that it is so difficult to explain that unless you've done it. Uh-huh. And I think that's one of the great challenges that we face when we're trying to explain hunting in the greater context of its place in the modern world yes. where we sit today. It's it's easy to look back in history and people kind of take it as given. Yes, of course people hunted. Uh-huh. But you don't why do you need to do it today? Right. And explaining yeah. explaining so what we've just discussed to you, your average person who hasn't experienced that is so hard. Yeah. Because we can talk about the numbers and the statistics and the science behind yeah. using hunting as a tool for the management. And the- but from an individual level participating, it's everything that you've just explained. That's what it, that's where it lies, though, is individually. I mean, the hunting community spends a lot of time, a lot of effort, a lot of words, a lot of communication on, on explaining the, the rational greater good of this thing as a conservation program. But... Killing is nothing small, you know. Violence is intensely personal, you know, and it's all about the intentions that that you go into it with, and the things that, in the ways that it affects you. This we wouldn't do this. Nobody would have ever dreamed this up as a conservation scheme, no. right? It comes from a personal drive, something that humans, some humans, are drawn to, you know, and. um and and it needs to be discussed individually. It needs to be explained individually. And it's always going to be a hard thing to communicate because, you know, you, you only really get it when you do it, you know? So it's going to be a... It's always going to be... Yeah, it's be a like, hard, hard battle fight. Yeah, but, I mean, all the best things are like that. I mean, it's it, it's simple. You never know why people spend all this money on skiing until you're flying downhill, <laughs> you know? <laughs> That's no. a good analogy, actually. A good comparison. Yeah. But underlying all of it, what we do still has to be right. And by right, exactly. I mean it has to... Be contributory. Yeah. Our impact can't be negative. Yeah. It has so to be irres- irrespective of the, the, the deeper connection to it, it wouldn't feel like that if we were having negative impacts on the environment or the species. That's true. It comes right back around. I mean, yeah. even... The it's br- connected. Yeah. I think, I think our, it's our duty as it's our duty as humans to be aware you know, That's the key. What, the you, what you just said there, it's our duty as humans. And I think we're very guilty in the hunting community as making it all about hunters. Yeah. Making it's it a our sport, duty right? as <laughs> human beings to be responsible. Yeah. Aware of what goes on. And, and I think if you're dutifully aware, to the best of your ability, if something starts having negative consequences in the way that, you're, that you know, it won't feel the same way. No, you know, and I have felt that. I mean, that's what that's what took me out of the safari thing. I was like, this this doesn't feel right because I know what I'm doing here. You know, even if I was enjoying it, or you know, whether I was enjoying it or not, it's it's the awareness of of the consequences. You know, that that will invade your emotions. You know, mm-hmm. you can't just deny those. You can't just bury those. I mean, for me, the point of finding is to is in large part to dig up emotional realities. You know, it's it's profound moments, it's profound connection, emotional realities of myself and of other animals. You know, see what's possible, feel what's possible, um, and that's different from from a path of consumption, right? It's different from a rationalization. Of acquisition, yeah, yeah, of or or this like trophy lust, 
mm. or this uh or you know this ego chase it, it there we've talked about this a couple of times recently with various people on the podcast but we are seem to be cornering ourselves sometimes in the hunting community while we scrabble for justification in the greater context mm. to always bring it back to the food aspect because it's a very easy discussion to have. Yeah, I killed it. I eat it. Do you also eat meat? Yeah, I do. Okay, well, this is yeah. this is more ethical than your, <laughs> than your than your than your farm produced whatever. Yeah. It's kind of the it's the easy card to play as part of it, but, but it can't be everything, right? Because that doesn't really have much to do with the funding of conservation. Yeah, exactly. Because a lot of a lot of the animals that bring in a lot of conservation money are predators. Yeah, but that's not the story either. It's not about the conservation money. I hunt bears, and bear is not tasty. At all. I've never tried. Well, actually, no, we tried European bear. That was yeah. actually pretty good. It was quite good. Was it? Yeah. yeah. It was smoked. Okay. I, <laughs> I just cut this thing out of like its thigh. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah, it was terrible. It was very well prepared, the okay. stuff that we had. Uh, and we didn't eat a huge amount of it. But Well, there you go. I didn't. <laughs> no, we weren't given much of it. Oh, okay. Although I would have gladly eaten more of it. Yeah. But I mean, I, you know, I had predators for a different reason. Not because it raises conservation money. If I wanted to. If if I wanted to just give money to conservation, I'd do it more directly. I'd do it without taking a bear out of the ecosystem, you know, if that was the only goal. So you can't rely on that as an explanation, you know. And and like we were talking about, there's a habit of justifying something, of always being so defensive about hunting. But you're only defensive when you know you're doing something wrong. And so if you're being defensive, you should ask yourself, what are you doing wrong? That's that's what we've been asking ourselves. Yeah. You know, what are we doing wrong? And I'm trying to figure it out. And I'm remorseful about some of the ways that I've taken lives before, you know. And it's a constant introspection because this develops over the course of your life. There's changes, things I don't yeah. know. There's sensitivities I have not acquired. Um, and that's that's fraught, right? But um, But for the reasons I explained, I don't feel like I'm doing something wrong by hunting a bear if I'm doing it in the right way. And I should also mention that I've spent cumulative weeks hunting black bear right, right in the in the darkness that we're staring at there, which is the which is the entire Bridger Range in the Gallatin National Forest in Montana, also down in the Lee Metcalf Wilderness area. I've spent a lot of time black bear hunting. Uh, I've never shot a black bear. Two seasons ago, I had my crosshairs on one. In fact, this this bear, my my brother had spotted it weeks before and he knew I was only in town briefly and he was like that's that's Jack's bear Jack should go shoot that you know so I went out and chased that I knew it was out there you know he had described it to me it has this big like sort of chevron of white on his chest um kind of thing like a blondish color and um and I I I had a great hunt I was I was out there totally alone and I kind of started talking to this bear <laughs> while I was out there you know, I was, I was I was just sort of speaking, uh, you know, in my mind or or maybe in maybe in words too. I don't remember. It's sort of communicating like if if we'll cross paths, we'll cross paths. You know, show me where you are, I'll show you where I am. We'll see. You know, and uh, <laughs> on the last day, I I 
I forget. I think I, yeah, I just spotted some movement and I circled around to where I thought it was and intuition carried me, you know, first I'll take a right here and then a left here and then a right here, you know, just <laughs> pure by sense of heart. And all of a sudden I come face to face with it, like 50 yards and it's sitting there like a black bear does in this uh, sunny meadow in the middle of the day where they like to sun. And it was just sitting there on its back quarters and I, you know, jolted, put, bolted a, a bullet in the rifle, held up my crosshairs. It's looking right at that chevron. And just, just, no, nah, there's no need to. That was enough. There's no need to shoot it <laughs> for me. Yeah. It was wonderful. But that, and that, that's like, that was just a personal, it was a personal feeling, personal choice at the yeah, time. Yeah. What it was not was a thought. I didn't think it. Hmm. You know, I didn't pull the trigger. The thing turned around and loped off. And I left so happy that we'd met, <laughs> you know? Um, Another time I shot a brown bear in Alaska, like I told you, you know, it's, you just, I don't know, when you're always in that moment, um, unless you're unfortunate enough to not understand what you're doing or to be overcome with panic or excitement, um, if as long as you're really in the moment, something else guides you, you know, your, your emotions or your feeling or, you know, something like the sense of creativity, something that flows through you, something that inspires you from a nameless source, you know gets you doing what you do. I didn't pull the trigger that time. So it's not all about that. No. You know? Sometimes the best hunts are the ones you don't pull the trigger. Yeah. That was that was joyful. Where do you think we're headed, um, generally speaking, with regard to wildlife globally and our ability to maintain what we have at the very least because it it seems that everywhere we look every newspaper you pick up every week of the year yeah there's another story of another species that is we're pushing to the brink right how how are we gonna readdress that and fix it because like we were talking earlier on this evening 20 30 years ago the big buzzword was sustainability mm. we got to keep doing things in a way that is sustainable. But we have many species that we don't, if we just sustain what's here right now, it's game over. And the trick to that theory is that we need to keep doing things the way we're doing them now. Yeah. (laughs) Which hides the fact that in the aggregate, that's a degenerative slope, right? (laughs) It just means, you know, let's be able to still build whatever we want, wherever we want. And eat whatever we want and farm whatever we want, you know? Because we we as humans have, you know, we have the biggest impact on this planet. Yeah, exactly. And and we're not, you know, we are not separate from nature. Uh, we, are, we are as animal as anything else. But our intellect is unique. It's not necessarily superior, but it's massively impactful, you know? And we've organized ourselves in such a way that, that I mean, we're going to, we affect the planet pretty much more than any other species in terms of in terms of relative change over time and um and so i mean there's it's almost an impossible question well no but the question is what we do it's conservation i mean you're you're but we have to we have to act this there are there are some uh, you know there are groups of people out there who think that the solution is to basically leave things alone Ring yeah. fence it, don't touch it. Right. And I think we've gone too far. We're too far down the road not to play a role in the management of this landscape and everything that's in it. I don't think that was ever the... I don't think we are ever meant to um, to be 
separate from things to, to have to quarantine ourselves or quarantine anything else. I think we have this intellect um, and this ability to impact things for a reason. And to the extent that we can impact things negatively, we can equally impact them positively. Um, and that requires an innovation. That requires basically an evolution of our thought, you know, a complete reversal of what we're using our power for. Use it for good rather than evil, you know. And uh, not to <laughs> not to bring any not kind a, of morality. Not a superhero type yeah, <laughs> you use it for something generative rather than extractive, yeah. and um, and that's that is that has obviously been tricky <laughs> over over our species history. But um, it all starts with recognizing our place in the ecosystem, which is unique. Uh, taking responsibility for the impact that we can have, and and sort of changing it sort of evolving it now that that is just the question of conservation that is what where what don't we do we got to change everything right um so let me run by you kind of a crazy idea i had <laughs> go for it shoot <laughs> this isn't the answer shoot from the but head. tell me what you think of this I've been, okay <laughs> I've been i'm wondering. intrigued so um because i approach this from a position of, of like what does it mean you know, I, I, I kind of believe that we have everything we need to, to create a better world. We're just not, you know. So what do we do with this? Um, and by we, I mean every living organism. You know, I'm an optimist, essentially. But um, how are we going to turn this around? Well, wolves, right? They they will eat one of their cubs if if they know it's going to be a hard winter. You know, if, if they know there's not going to be enough food for the pack, if they know they're overpopulated. Um, wolves obviously have emotions like love, they have connections, things like that, but the mother will eat the cubs. That is a wolf, that is a mother wolf doing something like abhorrent to her, uh, sacrificing something, you know, probably harder than sacrificing herself, killing her cub on behalf of a greater good, on behalf of a result she can't even see, right? Something down the line where there's more food to distribute. That's incredible. I think we they can even understand that's incredible. We think we have a monopoly on on you know on on looking into the future. I think we're one of the only species, possibly the only species, who sees time in this linear way, who can't reconcile time and space as being the same thing. And so we're the only one that conceives of a future, right? But I wonder, in, somewhere deep in our animal selves, because at a certain level, our consciousness overlaps with that of wolves and everything else, right? Um, I wonder if there's something in us, some way to access beyond all our egoism. If we could cut past that, would we access a part of ourselves that would be driven from the heart to do something for the greater good, even if it means restraining our short-term gain? Just because we're animals, right? And <laughs> if we really connect to our animal selves and connect to, to the, the fragility of life, you know, other life, not just our own, do you think we could we could find this hidden altruism that we've been so bad at accessing? I think some some people can. Mm-hmm. I think as a as a species, we've quite clearly been very shit at it. <laughs> so far. And yeah, we, very it is it is so hard for anybody to have a time horizon that's longer than their own lifespan. Right. And so you know, a hundred years isn't a long time in the grand scheme of things. But we can't even have a hundred year of 
yeah. view. Yeah, we don't you know, act our, for that purpose. Yeah, well, we've mentioned this a couple of times in terms of uh, hunting organization, uh, hunting organizations at home mm. and the kind of view they should be taking and the kind of stance they should be taking and the, the vision that they should have. It's far too short-sighted. Right. It needs to be, you know what, in the, it should be a 10,000-year view, but I know that that's going to be completely impossible to conceive, mm. but it needs to at least be a 100-year view. Yeah. Otherwise, how can you really make decisions that are going to be the correct decisions in the long term? Right. It goes back to exactly what you said. It's yeah. far too it's short-termism. Well, the first thing you would have to do is connect to something that's going to live beyond your lifespan. Yeah. You know, and and act on its behalf. But see, we do this for our children. Mm-hmm. You know. Yeah. Um. So we're capable of it. I just think that that I think altruism is something that's inspired. It's co-inspired. You know, and once you once you make contact with something. You're bound to understand it in a teleological way. You're bound to love it. You're bound to care for it. You're you're bound to protect it. You know, ideally, theoretically, in a in the grand scheme of things, I think that's how that process works. I believe in altruism being shared. So, I mean, the more that we can gain from seeing the the harmony and the respect and the fortunate interdependence over the course of multiple lifetimes of other organisms and the way they just do that without any ego being exercised, the more we can get inspired by that. I mean, I think that's the greatest hope for unlocking our penchant for altruism, which I think is simply buried, not non-existent. I don't think there's anything wrong with humans. I think we're just clouding ourselves. We're not paying enough attention. We're not aware enough. With awareness, we'll come we'll come altruism we'll come generosity the extension of yourself to to relate to another is something we practice and interestingly killing isn't really the I don't think it's really the I don't I don't really think it breaks that chain it doesn't no yeah I think we, we're seeing little pieces of it as we become increasingly aware of the impact that we've had you know, over the last few hundred years in particular, and yeah. the negative impact we've had on the planet, and people making conscious decisions to change the way they live their lives, not through incentive, but just because they realize that it's the right thing to do. Obviously, yeah. there are some, some things which are incentivized, things like reduced taxes on electric cars. We're trying to encourage people to make the right choice, whether you think that that is or not. It is encouraging people in a direction. Yeah. But there are equally things that people are doing off their own back just because they, with the best information they have at hand, they think it is what is for the greater good in the long term. So I think we're seeing little steps yeah. and towards I think, that now. I think that's a whole lot more impactful in the in the long term is the chain and the sharing and the co-inspiration of those events, of those decisions, much more impactful than a carbon tax. Yeah. You know, because it, it has to come from yourself. It has to come without incentive. Mm-hmm. It has to come for a will of the greater good. Yeah. And the, the beautiful thing about that is when you act altruistically, there is inevitably a reward. Mm-hmm. I, I've noticed. Yeah. You know. It's a little bit like uh, that, that saying, what do you do when no one's looking? Yeah. Because that's, that's really who you are. Yeah. And that is without incentive. And to bring it back to, you know, we're at a stage in our uh, human evolution, in our existence, we're living lives where we're still trying to figure out how to do good. We're not even always clearly at these crossroads. We're, we're, we're still trying to figure out what, what do I even not do, right? Yeah. There's a quote by Aldo Leopold that uh, somebody, Keith Balfour from Boone and Crockett Club, told me the other day. He, um, 
you recited this to me, so I don't know if it's completely accurate, but it's it's Aldo Leopold saying that conservation is what you think about when you're chopping down a tree. And that <laughs> and that chapter yeah. in his book, I think, is one of the greatest pieces. I, I was about to lean down in this bag because I thought this was my laptop bag because I have his book, yeah. Sand County Almanac, which you're just quoting, okay. in my laptop bag, but I don't have it with me. <laughs> and yeah, that, I encourage, I've, we've mentioned it before, and I encourage anybody who is intrigued by the conversation we've had tonight Go buy that book. It costs almost nothing on Amazon. Read those first two chapters, and he talks about cutting down an oak tree. Okay, I'll buy it. You, you I haven't need, read it. Have you not? I promise you. <laughs> it's also it, on Audible if you like audiobooks. Yeah, it is. There's an abridged version and a full version. It's I'm, not a very big book anyway. I might get into it after listening to if your I, if I'd silky had it voices here, through these headphones all evening. <laughs> <laughs> if I had had it here, I would have given you my copy. Yeah. But I, it's back at the house. But I think that's the stage we're at but now. But it's beautiful. Is I think that's kind of where we're at now. And we should forgive ourselves for not really knowing what to do. But as we are conservationists, whether it's inadvertently through predator hunting and spending a bunch of money, or it's just by being interested in it, you know, or just wondering, we should be asking ourselves our question, these questions. We should start with introspection and understand what we're thinking about while we're hunting, while we're deforesting things while we're yeah. consuming while we're doing anything yeah because we don't have the answers right now and i mean it's just it's pretty lofty to say just go be a better person that's something we must figure out before we're able to so it involves an, a portion of self-forgiveness which is um which is eventually what i learned in ethiopia and to, we're all going to find out in the book don't yeah. tell us anymore all right <laughs> you can spoil the end <laughs> but it's to forgive yourself for the things that you um that you struggle with and, and then you can begin to really understand the the good and bad, the generative, destructive, the egoism, the altruism, matrix of all those things. And it's it's not necessarily where you think it would lie, you know? It's also true that we have done things in our past and will continue to do things in the future that we are doing with absolutely the best intentions for the for the long term future, mm -hmm. which turn out to be such a shit idea. Yeah. <laughs> But we couldn't have known with the information we had at hand. Yeah. And I, that is all that we can hope to do is do the best we can with the information we have. Yeah. So that's the question. But that's why science is important. That, yeah. And science is just questioning, mm -hmm. you know, question others and question yourself, most importantly. Yeah. yeah. Now, I want to uh, just bring this to a close because obviously we're going to have a chance to chat with you again by kind of entering the next podcast we're going to do with you for what, with what you're doing now. With the Bear Trust. So just as a kind of a brief introduction from, because we got as far as you, now I'm doing right, I'm doing some right. writing, <laughs> but you're involved with the Bear Trust. Yeah, indeed. How did um, that come about? So that was through, um, that was through meeting a few good friends of my father. You know, my father and I share a sort of preoccupation with these ethics about hunting, the morality around it. And, um, you know, the, the hunting industry is a big one and it's, it's, you know, not everybody in it, I would consider a friend, right? But he, um, uh, he's involved with the board of the Bear Trust and introduced me to some people who, um, who were really like genuine, committed, introspective, sincere, uh, non-consumptive hunters. And one of them, by the name of Charles Smith in 1999, founded a trust for the conservation of all eight bear species all over the world. Um, and has been raising money for it and working, running edu education programs in public schools in the United States and uh, a little bit in Canada, I believe. And um, they've been raising a lot of money to apportion out to conservation projects. They are not a ad hunting advocacy group, um, and they are, and it's it's not pushing an agenda of hunting like so many other 
hunting related conservation organizations it's it's about bears and i felt like i could really start talking and learning you know about conservation through through working with them because the whole point of our communications is to return you know step past the conservation debate between humans and focus on what it should really be about which is bears for us you we know? do spend a lot of time talking to each other about things that in terms of groups yeah exactly and 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 uh i mean conservation is it, i wish it was less of an argument <laughs> you know but it's only it's only in human interaction that it becomes uh, such a debate and i think that distracts us a lot of times from uh, our priorities and so one thing i've always been interested in is sort of ironing out this virulent mistrust between hunters and non-hunters both of whom are often conservationists and so that we can focus on a melting planet and diminishing habitats and disappearing species and things like that and uh Bear Trust is an organization that's, you know, fantastically, they're, they're just focusing on the on the benefit of the species. So um, so that's what comes first. Yeah. That's, and then you work out how best to serve that interest. Yeah, how to get the most people um, engaged. Engaged and understanding it and that kind of thing. And another quote, the one I told you earlier, was, um, was kind of a ironic, almost a dismaying reality. I forget forget who said it. I, I, I should get back to you on, for the next podcast because I, I like to attribute these things properly. But um, it, was a, it was a writer saying that conservation, the success of conservation will be measured by its impact on people, which, which takes us back to the reality that we are the most impactful species. So conservation, on one hand, it's, it's the way that we use our power and resources and intellect to foster the the growth and and success of other species uh but it's also it's also the way we kind of overcome ourselves you know so so i like i mean i like bear trust's mission because it 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 starts with what's important it starts with the object of all this effort which is the the sustainability and the expansion of bears and their habitat um but it's a platform to talk directly about uh, about how to communicate this to others and how to get people on board and understanding where their priorities are at. And so the big project we're working on is a magazine that should come out at the end of this year that'll touch on the 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 centuries of human bear relationship that we have to learn from, you know, all the art, music, poetry, mythology, ritual, interaction, hunting, reverence, communication, you know, there's a, there's a lot to go on. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the human bear relationship is 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 a fascinating one. I mean, there's nothing I'd rather be researching, you know, beyond my observations as well. I, I think it's great to have an organization that is starting from the species first. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's as a start. That is like. That is the starting point for your conversation. Exactly. It's not working from people down. It's working from the species up. Yeah, it's not a. It's not coming from the standpoint of a hobby or an industry. Yeah. Or a, even an aesthetic. I mean, we're going to try to create an aesthetic around this, an honest one, so that you an can get people to one. buy into. It. But right now, it's. I mean, we're just we're just a fund. We're just a bank for. <laughs> that that hands out money to people doing excellent work in Malaysia and Ecuador and Canada and North America and to the extent which we're involved directly in our own programs we educate children about ecosystem management i mean i think it's a really it's a really um humble and unobtrusive unarrogant approach to conservation and it's something that myself and Logan Young who we'll talk to on Saturday are 
are trying to really develop in a in a in a clear in a clear way. That's uh, that's going to be a fantastic conversation to have. I'm looking I've, forward to it. Yeah, it's going to be. It's you've intrigued me. The conversations we've been having tonight, off air, and you know, bears are um, the most majestic and intriguing animal. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm looking forward to learning more ourselves and for our listeners as well when we have our our chat. 100% about bears in the bear trust on right. Saturday. <laughs> but it's been an awesome conversation tonight with you. Truly. I think there's going to be, people's minds are going to be melting by the end <laughs> of this podcast, I think, which is good. I yeah. mean, that was the point. It's it's about asking a lot of questions about yourselves and yeah. what you do and what your place is. I think our minds are going to be melting by the end of the night. <laughs> yeah, I think we need another beer. <laughs> exactly. Is it, I'm so glad y'all can make it over, by the way. Welcome well, thank to you very much for your hospitality. Yeah. Pleasure to meet y'all. And that's it for another two weeks, uh, because I don't think we'll be able to record another show at all. Um, am I correct, Varen, in saying that? Um, I'm not sure. Uh, I mean, don't worry, people. The way Daryl said that, it was like you weren't going to be getting a podcast. Uh, but there is a whole no, podcast no, no. recorded, but I just, no, I'm just not sure whether we'll be able to record our intro together, but possibly. So I get on a boat to the DRC on Thursday this week. It is currently Tuesday. Um and then it's like four or five days with no comms. Uh, and then I think there should be Wi-Fi in the hotel that we're staying at in Kinshasa. Uh, but there's no guarantees because it is Africa and uh, it's the DRC. So I'm not sure. Um, we might be able to. Um, we'll just have to see. Um, I will be around, I think. So if we can, we will. Uh, but we have a great podcast. In fact mistakenly, we were supposed to put this podcast out on the show you're listening to right now, but we didn't. We've uh, we picked a different one. But it doesn't matter. You're just uh, going to have to wait two weeks for an, another excellent podcast, uh, which is one that I recorded when I was uh, where exactly where I am right now um, in Namibia uh, two months ago uh, with Alex Olofsson. Uh And on that podcast, we talk about, um, well, I mean, all manner of things. It's, it's focused on... A big game largely in Africa, but also an, the incredible backstory of his family and his father, who essentially invented game capture. And amazingly, the capture method that we're using tomorrow to go and catch zebra for the Congo, his dad invented. So it's this beautiful wow. sort of parallel and continuation. Um, his dad sadly passed away a few years ago. Um, but, you know, Alex and, and his, his family and his mom are still here. Uh, sort of carrying on what he started, which is, you know, amazing. Uh, so, yeah, that, that's the podcast that you're going to hear in two weeks' time. And very relevant to what's been going on, or well, some of the discussions very relevant to what's been going on at home, I believe, from what I've seen in the news, because it seems that uh, trophy hunting and big game hunting in Africa in particular has been making the headlines in a very negative way. And I think that we probably address quite a lot of that in in this podcast so yeah two weeks and you'll get to hear that yeah well i i think we we still also need to record a show um covering uh also you know the news of the the banning of of certain trophy hunting uh people uh so or safari outfitters i guess would be the best way to describe it from Uh, from the the nec from the nec in birmingham um for our american listeners uh that 
don't know that because it probably hasn't really made it across there is basically uh, one of the very large shows in the in the UK called the British Shooting Show uh, has had forced upon them a ban of safari outfitters that offer trophy hunting and uh, so yeah they've our good friend uh, Tomo Svetic who's actually been on this podcast uh, he he was one of the outfitters that was banned from going Oh, wow, I didn't realize it was Tomo that was banned. Well, there you yep. have it. There's someone that has even been on the show that was banned from going. Yeah, so there you go. Uh, nice. I wanted to just remind everybody about the competition, which is to win a copy of Volume 3, Modern Huntsman. Modern Huntsman being uh, the partner of this podcast. In fact, you'll even see them now on the podcast album art. So if you haven't looked at that for a while, go check it out, because Modern Huntsman are on there. Uh, and we wanted you to tell us... And the animal sound, which is right at the start of the show, which if you've got this far, you've already listened to the animal sound. Uh, so <laughs> yep. just make sure that you contact us if you know what it is, and we will select the winner at random uh, from those people who correctly answered. And if you want to contact the show or uh, find out anything else, then it is uh, all the W's, thepacebrothers.com, and it is podcast at paceproductionsuk.com for everything else. Great. Well, I think that's it. I'm, yeah, tomorrow, zebra, the following day, five elephants, and then I get on a boat to the DRC. So hopefully I can, hopefully I will be able to speak to everybody in two weeks' time. But if not, don't worry, I'm sure I'm fine and you'll hear from me soon.